Some say we get what we deserve. Really? How can anyone deserve Beethoven's Ode to Joy? My topic is how you use a grace in a graceless world. Awful, amazing, gritty grace. What gives me the standing to stand here and talk about grace? I haven't taken any religious training, been to seminary, Bible college, or even vacation Bible school for that matter. <laughs> I'm not sat under a tree like the Buddha, but I know I have experienced moments of grace as I'm sure everyone in here has. The thing that started my thinking about this uh, was a documentary I've seen on a couple of occasions, and I'll tell you each time I was mesmerized by it. And it, it was watching the unfolding of the life and political rise of Senator Robert Kennedy and his tragic and untimely death. I was moved by the images of a man who was plunged into the abyss of grief and despair over the death of his brother, the president, a few years earlier. I watched as Robert Kennedy emerge from that abyss with more empathy for those who have suffered with deprivation and the pain of injustice and violence. In the course of the documentary, there was an indelible scene, or at least it was indelible to me, and it's when Robert Kennedy stood in front of a primarily black neighborhood in Indianapolis of uh, people who had come to hear him speak. What you find out is they had not yet heard that Dr. Martin Luther King had been killed earlier that day. And Kennedy, obviously very distressed, told the crowd of this death. And there was an audible gasp from the audience. And Kennedy went into a, a, a rather impromptu speech where he called for peace, understanding, and national unity. These were some of his words. What we need in the United States is not division. What we need in the United States is not hatred. What we need in the United States is not violence or lawlessness, but love and wisdom and compassion toward one another and a feeling of justice toward those who still suffer within our country, whether they be white or they be black. Let us dedicate ourselves to what the Greeks wrote so many years ago that is, to tame the savageness of man and make gentle the life of the world. He concluded his remarks with, by saying, my favorite poet was Aeschylus. He wrote, even in our sleep, pain which cannot forget falls drop by drop upon the heart until in our despair, against our will, comes wisdom through the awful grace of God. I can tell you, I couldn't shake the phrase, the awful grace of God, because I thought, well, what is that? So I'm thinking about the sermon. I moved from that to the hymn that we sing, and in fact was the offertory, Amazing Grace. Probably many of you have heard the story of how this came to be. It's the story of an Englishman, John Newton, who was a slave captain turned Anglican priest. 
And according to one story, and probably the more fanciful story, uh, he was sailing with, his, with the human cargo, that is the slaves, and a fierce storm overtook the ship. Surviving the horrible storm, John Newton had a conversion experience which allowed him to see the evil of slavery and set on a path to becoming an abolitionist and a priest. Now, that's one story, but not necessarily the true story. In truth, it appears that the captain retired after making a significant amount of money in the slave business, returned to England, and in, and in fact became a priest. He became known for his hymn writing, and over the years, his views on slavery shifted, and he became an abolitionist. So it may not have been an all-of-a-sudden conversion from slavery to abolitionist, from sinner to saint, but it did evolve. I think this says something about grace and that grace can gradually grow. Awful grace, amazing grace. But what about gritty grace? I remembered a poem that I had read in another sermon and, um, and thought I would repeat it again today. As Miss Susan says, uh, you've heard it before, but not, you didn't hear it today. And so here it is. And the name of the poem is called, The Thing Is. To love life, to love it even when you have no stomach for it, and everything you held dear crumbles like burnt paper in your hands, your throat filled with the silt of it. When grief sits with you, its tropical heat thickening the air, heavy as water, more fit for gills than lungs. When grief weighs you like your own flesh, only more of it, an obesity of grief, you think, how can a body withstand this? Then you hold life like a face between your palms, a plain face, no charming smile, no violet eyes, and you say, yes, I will take you, I will love you again. And to me, that is gritty grace, not pretty, but the transformation of awful to amazing grace. Let me go back for a second and just into the roots of UU Theologies of Grace. Um, what I would think is that if you went to any UU church today, you would probably not hear them talk about salvation in particular. The history of Unitarians is that they were rebels from Congregationalism that believed a radical theology, which is that of the salvation by character. Uh, that is, Unitarians have a very high opinion of humanity, that we were made in God's image after all, and that we were and are optimistic about being able to improve ourselves in the world. Universalists had a high opinion of God, were optimistic about God saving our souls, irrespective of character. So either people were too good or God was too good for such a thing as hell or eternal damnation. So the issue wasn't really one of salvation, um, but I think Unitarian Universalists have grappled with the idea of grace, what it means, what it doesn't mean. Um, we've taken exception with it, and so I wanted to talk a little bit about that. Although our current definitions of grace most likely come out of the Christian ideals of divine grace, that is God or Jesus or the Holy Spirit's intercession in human lives, Unitarians took exception with that from pretty much from the get-go because when we sing, we'll sing Amazing Grace, probably just like Jesse Norman sang it, um, and you'll notice by the word wretch is an asterisk which, so you can substitute the word, the word soul for that. 
because the idea is that we weren't wretches in particular. Um, and the difference in the words illustrates the early Unitarian Universalist theologies that developed against the Calvinistic notion of election to grace. That is that God had already selected a, li a limited number of souls for salvation and there was nothing anybody could do to change it. And this is where the Universalists come in and said, in fact, God has selected all souls for salvation. And into this breach came the early Unitarians, in particular, William Ellery Channing, who started kind of the whole name of the denomination with his sermon on Unitarian Christianity, who argued that all people not only have the spark of divinity within them or within us, but also that we could do more to perfect ourselves. Um, so, Unitarian Universals have a, a pretty different slant on, on grace than uh, more traditional Christian theologies. Within our own midst, there can be different takes on it. There are with us naturalists whose views of grace are probably more influenced by Thoreau and Emerson, and might say that God is nowhere involved in these moments of awe and beauty uh, that we find in the natural world. But in fact, these are the moments that lift us from despair. Thoreau wrote, so many years ago, only that day dawns to which we are awake. Which, some idea about being open or awake to grace. Our opening hymn this morning was Morning Has Broken, and I think it also talks to this, to this notion of being there to open or welcome grace and beauty. The earth exhibits its beauty regularly if we have eyes open to it and see it. Naturalists may say, what did we ever do to deserve the beauty of the moon, of the sunset, of a sunrise? The sun does, does this every day. It doesn't care what your day was like or if your actions warrant this or not. It's there when we notice it, when our eyes are open. Mine is the sunlight, mine is the morning, God's recreation of the new day. What about the humanists in here? What might their theology of grace be? It may be something like, humans are punished by their sins, not for them, and that the evil we do lives with us. By the same token, we believe we are enriched by our virtues and that the good we do lives with us and beyond us as a benediction of peace in our own lives and in the life of humanity. So to say, humans are the source as well as the recipients of grace. Back to the awful grace of God, does it always become amazing grace? What's the alchemy? I must admit here that the concept of God's grace coming because of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross never really spoke to me. Remember, I didn't go to Bible school and uh, or any theological institute. So as heretical as it may sound, I always figured Jesus had the inside story. He had the inside scoop. Then he knew the plan from the beginning. And he was having to deal with it, and it was terrible. But he, he knew what was going on. So hopefully I won't be struck down by that. Anyway, I, 
I got more out of the story of Job. He suffered horribly. And so had so many bad, terrible tragedies happen. And he seemed like he was kind of like a poor schmo like us. Like, like he didn't have any insider information. But he was steadfast when mocked, criticized, and told he must have done something so wrong to deserve his reversal of situation, asked rhetorically, shall we receive the good at the hand of God and not receive the bad? His was not a utilitarian faith, not a quid pro quo for all the good he did, that he would be rewarded with goodness, wealth, happiness, no suffering. Maybe implicit in Job's question is the understanding that suffering, pain, injustice are part of the awful grace of God, from which maybe in our despair, against our will, there comes wisdom. The last thing I wanted to do when I was talking about this was to sound glib or to offer ready explanation or cliche reassurances. But I do wonder if God's awful grace may show up as a reality, truly awful, that might open the door for other possibilities. Perhaps the pain or tragedies that happen to us, the failures that mock us, the shame that humiliates us, doesn't tell the whole story. There's a second act. There's a second act if we work for it or look for it. There can be a sequel. Maybe that's what our part of turning something into amazing grace is about. I remember seeing a woman a few years ago in, in my office who had been in a motor vehicle accident. It was bad enough, it totaled her car. And she was taken to the emergency room to be checked out to make sure she didn't sustain internal injuries. In the process of this, a brain tumor was found that was still operable. It wasn't caused by the accident, but discovered because of the accident. So, as awful as it may have been, it ultimately saved her life. Could it be the seemingly awful thing, like a 20-year-old uh, tearing her ACL, uh, that might allow the goodness to be brought out in everyone around? I've heard on uh, several occasions, numerous occasions really, when someone, it might be a client, it might be a stranger, uh, under great duress will comment something like, God doesn't give me more than I can handle or he didn't bring me this far to drop me now. And I think in this, inherent in this belief is, is, is a reflection that there is grace to come. We just have to look for it or be open to it. How about the shooting at the Emanuel AME Church in Charleston? That awful grace of God event that showed us the power of forgiveness comfort, and caring about each other. In fact, on the two-year anniversary just last month, they had a hate long in unity walk and encouraged, in fact, acts of amazing grace, encouraging people to respond to the massacre with acts of kindness, such things as buy a cup of coffee for a neighbor, organize a food drive, 
make a donation to the worthy cause, read to a child, practicing amazing acts of grace that would come out of the most awful reality. Grace has a, a koan or a koan quality, and that's like the paradox of the riddle that you really can't reason out. Um, I think there's probably different kinds of grace. It can look like sportsmanship, fair play, it can look like courage, integrity, dignity, love. What we do know about it is it can't be bought or sold. It's uh, grace is given to the most deserving and the most undeserving, like rain falling on the just and the unjust. We can prepare for it, we can beg for it, but we can't conjure it up. We can't pull it out of a hat like a magic trick. Like Anne Lamott said in the first reading, it's the help you receive when you have no bright ideas left. When you are empty and desperate, you've discovered that your best thinking and most charming charm have failed you. So grace can't be manufactured, earned, it can't be injected, it can't be hoarded. Grace comes from um, the Latin word meaning thanks and gratitude. The Marian Dictionary reflects the Christian spin on it, saying that it's unmerited divine assistance given humans for their re regeneration or sanctification. Now in my life, I've experienced countless moments of grace, maybe a near miss on my bike or in the car, what could have been a horrible accident, but wasn't. When the sky is a color that is indescribable, <clears throat> when my um, 17-year-old brother at the time uh, put socks on my mother who just lapsed into a coma. <clears throat> a day or two before she died, and he said, now your feet are only so cold. A moment of grace when someone does something so kind, so unsolicited. <clears throat> Words don't do justice to the ineffable. I hope, imagine, and trust that everyone in here has experienced their own moments of grace. But we know it's not just sunrise, sunsets, and the utter magnificence of, uh, of nature. In the meditation I read earlier, there was the juxtaposition of the despair of the world with the grace of the world. The world is terrible and beautiful, despair and solace. So how do we square any sense of grace in light of, and you can just name it, whether it's Bosnia, Syria, human trafficking, abject poverty, massacres, or how about our own personal suffering? When it feels like your guts are bathed in acid, when you're eaten up by fear, guilt, shame, or you're just so damn sad, what about grace then? I don't have a ready answer, so, uh, but I have learned a couple things doing the work I've done in my life, and that is there's always a danger in comparison. 
either comparing my seeming, someone's seemingly good luck or undeserved good luck with my less than good luck, or giving myself grief because I can't explain why some people suffer so tremendously. I will say that life does seem so merciless and graceless for some, and it makes no sense. But if I get paralyzed by this, the even small things I might do are jettisoned. Maybe our gain of wisdom spurs us on to help, to act gratefully and graciously, to be present, to be part of a circle of grace, to get out of the denial of despair. As I prepared for this, two things were came through pretty clearly as helpful to and maybe even necessary for grace. And the two things are connection and space for grace. How many of us, or rather how often do we feel restless, irritable, discontent? When we feel all the D words, disheartened, discouraged, despair, desperate, totally disconnected. We can become selfish in our suffering. We can feel disconnected from ourselves, from others, from the world, from all that is holy. Isolated, invisible, forsaken. Then, the tr then there may be a small crevice that opens where a light can strike. A moment of reconnection if we are open to it, to see the light and allow ourselves to feel it. That felt sense of something larger than me that holds all. To experience this reconnection, we need to make space for grace, to look for it, to come to know we are not alone. Maybe the wisdom that transforms awful to amazing grace is all about making that connection and that space happen. Understanding that beautiful and terrible things will happen, that bad things will happen to good people. And maybe our job is to look for what's the sequel, what, what's going to come out of this. Grace is feeling accepted, connected, a sense of I am okay and have a place feeling accepted by something that is greater than my individual life. It doesn't have to have a particular name or power. A God, personal God or an impersonal God. We don't have to argue this, debate it, or even understand it. Simply to accept that I'm accepted, that I'm present and in relationship to the world. So to say that grace has so many faces, so many different aspects, grace appears, embraces, emboldens us. It can erupt, it can break out in a flash mob like the uh, meditative music, show, show up bidden or unbidden. It can unfold, gradually grow, envelop. Grace can hold and carry us, and we can carry grace to the larger world.
And I will end with um, a, a short poem that was written by a woman who had just suffered the fifth death in her close, in her immediate family. There is a brokenness out of which comes the unbroken, a shatteredness out of which blooms the unshatterable. There is a sorrow beyond all grief which leads to joy and a fragility out of whose, whose depths emerges strength. There is a hollow space too vast for words through which we pass with each loss and out of whose darkness we are sanctified into being. There is a cry deeper than all sound whose serrated edges cut the heart as we break open the place inside which is unbreakable and whole while learning to sing. And so we can practice learning to sing now as we sing Amazing Grace.